You're right in D.C. with Gail Trotter. Hey, everyone. I am Gail Trotter, host of Right in D.C. Today, I am so excited to have my guest, David Harsani. He is a senior editor at The Federalist, where one of my good friends, Molly Hemingway, also works, and he's a nationally syndicated columnist. And David, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. I love following you on Twitter, so let's just get that out there right now. If people <laughs> want to follow you, what is your handle on Twitter? At David Harsani. David, H-A-R-S-A-N-Y-I. The silent Y. That's correct. <laughs> uh, and I wanted to interview you. I follow you on Twitter, and I noticed that you were an author and you had a forthcoming book. So I put my name on the list to get it as soon as it came out. And I was very excited because this is a topic near and dear to my heart, but one that there is so much information and history and knowledge about that very few people have uh, at their fingertips. And your book is called First Freedom, A Ride Through America's Enduring History of the Gun. What inspired you to write this book? Well, I've always been a Second Amendment advocate throughout my career, at least. And, um, you know, I was looking for a book that sort of was just an accessible history book about the gun. Most a lot of gun folks are really into their hobby or, you know, into the Second Amendment. And that's really good. Uh, but their their books are typically really very specific, like how to build an AR-15 or whatever. So there were very few books that sort of just summed up the broad history of the gun and gave an overview of why it was important in American culture, not necessarily only for the gun, uh, you know, the gun advocate, the Second Amendment advocate or the gun person, but for just anyone who was interested. So I tried to synthesize all that other information and you know, bring it together into sort of a narrative that was accessible and readable for people. That's the book I was looking for. So I figured I'd try to write it. And have you, like I, noticed that some of the people with the most vociferous opinions on guns, gun control, the Second Amendment, really have a very limited knowledge about guns and the history, not only of firearms, but specifically the history of it in the United States, which, which seems like it would bear some relevance on these conversations? Well, yeah, I mean, m most obviously, I think that they're, they have ignorance about the, the technical aspects of a gun, which is important when you're making laws that ban certain technical aspects of a gun. So I think um, that that is the most obvious thing where people don't know the difference between semi-automatics or automatics or think, you know, don't understand what a rifle is. But certainly, I think there's a big gap. Well, two things. I think there's a huge, you know, ignorance about the culture and history and how important guns were. Because even I, I think, was ignorant of much of that, of, of some of that, uh, when I first started writing this book. But uh, more, more than that, they they go back many historians and try to revise the history to make it seem less important. And I think that misleads people about not just the importance of guns themselves, but the importance of the philosophy of the Second Amendment and the importance of natural right to defend yourself and things of, of that nature. You start off your book with an interesting retelling of the story of David and Goliath. Did you decide to do that because he shares your first name or was that <laughs> uh, subconscious? Well, he's a great, I'm Jewish. He's a great hero of the Jewish people. So I always, I'm, I'm a big fan of King <laughs> David in general, an imperfect man who did many great things. Um, but I think, 
you know, and I'm not the first person to ever mention this, but I think that people uh, always don't realize that he wasn't the underdog in the fight with Goliath. He had the projectile weapon, and the projectile weapon will always be better than a handheld weapon, and superior firepower always wins out, or mostly wins out. So it was, uh, I thought, a good place to start explaining why ranged weapons and the and, and space between your enemy was so important to people, to humans, right almost from the beginning, and uh, why, why the gun exists. Right, and I had the opportunity to testify before the Senate Judiciary Committee about gun control efforts and how people who are physically smaller or may not have a lot of um, skill, you talk about in the story with David, he was a shepherd boy and he was used to using his sling. It was life or death if he wasn't able to hit the threats, the predators to his herd or to himself and the other people he was around, he was gonna die, he was gonna lose money. And that that was a really skilled weapon. But when I, when I testified before the Senate Judiciary Committee, I talked about uh, exactly what you're saying about the ability to remove yourself further away. So it's not hand-to-hand combat. It's not, um, you know, knife. You have to be pretty close to obviously land it. And um, I, I found it very interesting that with David, you you talked a lot about the skill of it kind of in contrast to what essentially became the firearm. Right. I, th- I forgot the historian's name, but some historians said that the, the moment that human humans, you know, came up with a ranged weapon or a weapon that, you know, created space between them and their enemies, they went from and their prey. No, I'm sorry. They went from predator being prey to being predators. And that goes for hunting, obviously, as well, where you can't tackle, uh, you know, uh, some sort of uh, deer. You have to shoot it. But um, what you mentioned is is very important, obviously, as far as defense goes, especially for people who are or smaller and things of that nature. But it's important also, I think, to mention that the gun actually, the handgun specifically, took far less skill to use than many of the weapons that came before it, bow and arrows, slings, things like that, and which made them the the gun of sort of the revolutionary, that made, you know, it made it easier to use, made governments more scared, scared to have armed populace, you know, population. And I think a, a handgun specifically, though I'm not diminishing how important it is to train and know how to use one, uh, are easier to use than many of the other uh, weapons that came before, certainly swords and things of that nature, but even slings and arrows and things things like that. Right. I like how you cover that in your book. And it is fascinating, though, to, to read about the history of the development of the weapon. You talk about, I think it was a French explorer, was it Champlain, who... Uh, was in warfare against various Indian tribes, Native American tribes, and he had a certain type of weapon. And you describe it very well in the book about how difficult it was uh, to light it. The the fuse that you had to have, they would have it lit on both sides, and it had to hit the flash pan just right. And essentially, you, I'm very interested in this, but you said it was more about the sound of the weapon that uh, scared the opponents and made them run away than it really was about the effectiveness in that, I guess, in what was manufactured at that time on a very individual basis. Can you tell a little bit more about the story sure. of that? So um, I tried to uh, anchor each chapter with the story about a, you know, a real life human being and how the weapon that he had in his hand changed American history in some way. Champlain was a you know, there's a big lake named after him in, in upstate New York. He was a, a French explorer who uh, sort of got involved in the 
in the pol- politics of, of Indian tribes there for, for very capitalistic reasons, having to do with fur and so on. And he uh, used a matchlock musket, which was a very heavy gun, very hard to use, not as, uh, not as effective really uh, as the bow and arrow in many ways. Uh, used it against the Indians first time many of them of the, of the uh, five nations saw this weapon. Later on, of course, Indians would be excellent, uh, excellent with guns, use them for all kinds of hunting. It would change their society in many ways. Uh, they could never really manufacture guns or manufacture, manufacture ammunition, which, which hurt them, obviously, and uh, in, in a big way. But Champlain used the gun to scare off, scare off the Five Nations. Many of the early explorers, this is in the early 1600s, many of the early explorers who had matchlocks, which were, as you mentioned, had to, you had to keep a lit fuse. Uh, if it rained, you would, it wouldn't work. It would, it would misfire all the time. It was very difficult to use, especially in the wilderness. But he, uh, it, he scared the Indians with it. It made a big clapping noise. Uh, the wounds that would come because of it were, were massive, not like an arrow, were much more dangerous, things like that. So the, the, the Indians obviously wanted it for themselves so that they could have more power for hunting, which it's, it, it was more effective, you, effectively used. But I think it was a psychological aspect of firearms, certainly there was, that changed the way uh, America grew and how we treated the Indians and how they viewed us and all of that. So I go into that more deeply, but it had a lot to do with psychology, not so much the effectiveness of the musket itself, which wasn't really that great a weapon all the time, specifically in the wilderness. Right. And you mentioned, I think it was John Smith, one of the founders of James Colony in uh, Virginia, who was injured you know, using a firearm, one of those very primitive ones, and use that to, I guess, make the point that they were very dangerous at that time because they were not very developed. But you kind of put that in contrast with what was being used in Europe previous to that was essentially carrying a little cannon around on your shoulder. And they were very heavy. Sometimes they took multiple people to to carry them. And uh, it it took a long time for the military to adopt this new technology, which I think we see a lot in uh, new technologies in our armies now, that the wanting to lag behind in the adoption of things. Yeah, I, I mean, in every in every era I, I write about, uh, the military is very slow to adapt new technology. <laughs> but to be fair to them, you know, it's it's not just about saying, okay, so I have a new gun. Let's say I have a breech loading rifle. It's a new thing. I want to use it. It's it's hard because you need to teach the soldiers how to use it. It's a, you know you have to change not just not just the weapon itself, which is an expensive proposition, but you have to change the culture around it because it's used differently and things of that nature. So I keep saying things of that nature. That's that's a thick. <laughs> but um, the thing is that that conser- the military is typically conservative about these things. So and often right. I go through many guns in the book that didn't work out. And it's lucky that the military didn't just adapt them immediately, you know. So uh, it's important that, they, you know, to, to, to note that in retrospect, it's easy to say, why didn't they all use muskets? But I think when you when you weigh the pros and cons of all the guns and the things that they saw, it makes a, a little more sense. Speaking of Europe, you talk in your book about how hunting was really restricted to the upper class and the aristocracy, and there was an idea that maybe lands would be overhunted, and it was a control and a power thing, and that was very much in contrast with the American experience, where hunting was key for survival, and you had these vast lands that 
no one could contain or ha really have control over it, just as it was really being developed with um, people pushing out west. Can you tell a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, uh, hunting, hunting, hunting in the New World was a necessity for survival, obviously. But it also there was such plentiful game that it could be sport as well, and it was a it was something that really tied together generation to generation. Fathers would teach their sons how to hunt. Uh, that's when they first, you know, that when they first start using a gun, when they learned about a gun, how to maintain a gun, how to make ammunition, all of those sorts of things. And that that tradition would go on really to today. But until in the you know, even in the 50s, there was just a gigantic movement in this country of people hunting. It was a huge sport. So it was very important as survival, but also as part of gun culture and why we had guns, especially as people started moving west, which they did from the moment they hit ground here till maybe even the 1950s when people were still moving to California. It's just a westward push. And many of those people for many of those years had to rely on their guns to survive. So, um, and when they encountered bigger animals like buffalo and things of that, you know, things like that, they needed to get even bigger and more powerful weapons or weapons that would sometimes even shoot farther. So it had a lot to do with the development of guns, like the Kentucky rifle, for instance, um, in American history. So hunting is a is a big component of gun, gun culture in this country. And in Europe, obviously, it was very different because the governments didn't want uh, poor people to have weapons for, for, for the obvious reasons of, 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 of re revolt, but also because uh, they were, land is not as plentiful, plentiful there, obviously, as it is here. And you talk a little bit about the German Americans in, I think, the 1700s who were really affiliated and um, practitioners of the development of firearms in America. Can you tell a little bit about that? Sure. The Germ Ger Germans are great gun makers. And many of them who came here specifically to Pennsylvania, specifically to Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, uh, were the great greatest early gun makers in America. They invented the pencil, the long rifle, which was called the Pennsylvania long rifle or the Kentucky rifle. Kentucky being anything that was west of their town, you know, at the time. So uh, they invented that gun, which took some some German technology of rifling, which is spiraling the inside of the uh, barrel. Uh, a musket typically would be smooth bored, so the the ball would sort of bounce against it or not. You know, you'd have 50 yards of you could shoot at 50 yards and maybe not really even aim very well from there. So the Kentucky rifle could shoot maybe 250 yards. So it was a big jump in technology, uh, which is used during the American Revolution, um, far less than than later. It would be sort of mythologized and glor glorified and romanticized in a way that that is 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 not fair to the gun, I guess. But um, <laughs> I hate to talk about guns like people, but the. Uh, <laughs> The uh, the Germans built that gun, and the Germans were the great gun makers of, of early America. And uh, Lancaster, for instance, I think way into into the until Americans opened their own government armories in Springfield and in Harper's Ferry, Lancaster was the central hub of gun making in America. And though we don't really know the names of the people later on, we would who invented those guns. It was probably more a sort of communal invention, but uh, they. They really uh, sort of kickstarted the American gun culture as far as the engineering and technology of it went, and that did not stop un until it has never stopped. That was something really fascinating I learned from your book about Lancaster because I have visited family members there, and I didn't realize it had that 
reputation and that it was such a hotbed of um, trade and kind of the gateway to, you were saying everything past that was kind of considered Kentucky. And I just wasn't really familiar with the history of that. So that was, I learned something really important and interesting from that. Um, kind of switching a little bit past the Civil War, uh, I I'm curious, you talk about Annie Oakley, who was obviously very famous and uh, so so much so that she has retained kind of a, a mystery or a following even to this present day when a lot of other things fade through our um, through the sands of time. Uh, what can you tell us about Annie Oakley? So before speaking about Annie Oakley, I just take a step back to to a few years to Wild Bill Hickok and gunfighters and sort of Western mythology that bu- that was built around those people. That's not to say they weren't gunfighters, but typically <laughs> we're just talking about psychopaths who were killing right. people and shooting them. Very rarely was it as romantic as you know going to the center of town and staring at each other and and then you know shooting <laughs> it out in that way. Though it did occasionally happen. Most of the time is just most of those gunfighters aren't anti-heroes. They're just psychopaths. Um, but the, the West was sort of mythologized. And for the e- for people in the East, they would read the penny, penny um, novels that were made about it and w- just love that culture. And then Buffalo Bill, who's a hunter and a sort of Western, all, all around sort of Western dude, uh, packaged it finally for, for, for the East. And that's when people like Annie Oakley uh, emerged. A lot of these people were not really, really as great as they made out. You know, it was an act. It was uh, entertainment. But Annie Oakley was the real deal. She was an amazing shot. She's a small woman. I think she was four eleven or something like that. Um, she could. She married another sharpshooter. So impressed when he met her, um, and they were married until they died. I think a week apart. Uh, many years later, she uh, grew up. I forgot now what state it was. Maybe it was Ohio shooting squirrels. She was just an amazing shot. Most of the things that are attributed attributed to her shooting cigarettes out of people's hands, shooting you know two thousand out of three thousand light bulbs that were thrown in the air, things of that, things like that. She, she did that. She was amazing. Uh, she was also an advocate for women owning firearms, using firearms, protecting themselves. She campaigned in in New York. Uh, they had passed a law. I forget what year it was in the eighteen hundreds where women would not be allowed to own a gun if they weren't married. They wouldn't have to allow to have a gun in the house. And she went to New York and campaigned against that law. She, uh, I have an interview there for, that she had with the Cincinnati newspaper, which tells them how she would carry. She had this sort of uh, slot in her umbrella so that when she was walking around town with herself, if anyone bothered her, she'd pull out her revolver and, and deal with it on her own. So she was this amazing woman, great with guns, an advocate for women. Oh, she wrote should mention this. She wrote a letter to McKinley during the span, I think it was the Spanish American war offering her services and other women sharpshooters uh, to go and fight in the war. Um, How awesome is that? <laughs> I think they would have done very well actually. So that's <laughs> uh, a shame, but it, it, that they didn't go, but it is, right. uh, it, she was an amazing woman. Uh, and I, I very much enjoyed writing about her. And did she buy, did she die by gunfire or did she die some other way she died peacefully in her maryland home i think i forget if her husband i think her husband died a week earlier and then she passed away i think it was in the 1920s she was still very famous um really well pulled together woman in the sense of her taking care of her her money and 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 fortune and and living a really incredible life 
Uh, I love your discussion of the National Rifle Association in your book. Many people have been members of the NRA for a long time, and they see how it is, uh, how it positions itself in politics right now, and also how uh, it is demonized or caricatured by opponents of the Second Amendment. And you really go into the history of the NRA, and it might surprise people to learn a little bit more about how it developed into what it is right now in the, the time frame. Well, yeah, in the post-Civil War, um, was it post-Civil War? Yeah, post-Civil War, the, there were two, it was a general and some other person who were dismayed at how bad America, can you imagine something like this today, but were dismayed at how American men were terrible shots, right? <laughs> so they wanted to rectify that problem and they started some clubs and essentially it uh, soon manifested in a national organization uh, for shooting, shooting clubs, uh, you know, teaching young people how to shoot. They, they, uh, they would enter shooting contests with others from other countries even. It was a big deal. Uh, and they were just a sort of a – I wouldn't call it a hobbyist group, but basically for hunting, for shooting, and, and that's how they grew. And this happened post-Civil War, and this is was what the organization was. They, they didn't very much involve themselves in politics because, frankly, as I, as I note in the book, there, there was no need to. There was no – very rarely was there ever any sort of um, – you know, law that was that challenged the ownership of rights of gun owners, and uh, very rarely was there any any law that uh, made made you ask the government if you could have a you know if the state if you could have a gun. There's no gun control laws. There were in cities here and there, but there was no national, there was no federal law or anything like that until the 1930s. And when it was the 1930s came and these laws, FDR was pushing these laws. The the NRA basically went along with a lot of it, though not all of it. Some historians make it seem like they were, they were, you know, working with FDR to pass these laws. It's not the case. They opposed, for instance, a fingerprinting licensing scheme that FDR wanted. Uh, but they, because there was so much criminality in the in the in the 1930s with people in their cars driving around with fully automatic uh, guns and things like that, scaring everyone, uh, some of these laws were passed. Even though none of those laws banned any guns, just certain doing certain things with certain guns. In any event, by the 1970s, there was a lot of crime, and the framework of our modern debate on gun control had been formed. A bunch of people said, we have to take all the guns off the street, and another bunch of people said, we have to protect ourselves from these crazy people who are going to get guns anyway, and the NRA had to make a choice. And in 1977, they made their choice to remain a hobbyist group and not a Second Amendment advocacy group. Uh, but there was a coup at their convention, and it was taken over by the more politically-minded folks. Uh, everyone points to the, or everyone, you know, gun control types point to this moment as when the radicals took over the NRA. But the truth of the matter is, if the NRA had moved to Colorado and just be, stayed a hobbyist group, some right. other Second Amendment group would have emerged and done what they're doing. But they were in the best position to do this. Um, their views on the Second Amendment haven't changed since they became a political organization. And, Say that uh, again. I think that's a really key point. Yeah, I mean, their views on the Second Amendment – listen, I don't think the NRA is perfect, but their views on the Second Amendment have not changed uh, since 1977. Um, everyone says that they were radicalized, but, but the truth again is that from 1977 to 1982, they didn't lose members. They doubled their membership because it was an important issue 
there was no one standing against this push for gun control, specifically in urban areas, uh, which, which in effect outlawed people from owning firearms, especially handguns. And this is the truth in, in D.C. This was the truth in New York City, which had the oldest gun control laws from the Sullivan Act in the early 1900s. And this was true in other cities as well. So that's when the NRA changed. And, uh, you know, obviously it has different leadership. They have stressed different things at different times, but they are not radically outside. They are not radical in their views. Their views have not changed. Gun control people, their views have become much more strident from the 70s. If you read, like, read speeches from Robert Kennedy, who was a big gun control guy uh, at the time, he he talks about the Second Amendment in ways that that today's you know gun grabbers would never speak about <laughs> guns. So the idea that the NRA has changed is not true. The people around the NRA have changed. They may seem more radical to people, but the NRA in general has remained very consistent. In fact, it meant many gun owners think they're way too moderate about stuff. You know, it's the truth. So it's it's worth noting that as well. Right, and that's why you have other. There are organizations now that take a more aggressive approach, I would say, right? Right. I mean, when Heller was Heller, which which codified the right of individual gun ownership, uh, was going through the courts and in sort of earlier cases, it was the NRA. It was a bunch of libertarians who wanted to push that case. The NRA was against pushing it for you know for a sound reason. They they were scared to go to the court, and then the court would find that it was a collective right, and there would be no way back. So it was a bunch of NR, NR, uh, libertarians who didn't even own guns who pushed that case um, for, for completely ideological reasons. And Heller now is law of the land until the, until liberals get the court back. And, uh, you know, that's that's the most important from the writing of the Second Amendment till now. That's the most important gun 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 case there is. So uh, and McDonald as well, which came a little later. But, the, you know, so I'm just saying that the NRA is not this over-the-top nut, nut, nutty organization. They, they have a pretty well-thought-out historical sort of culture and philosophy uh, that hasn't much changed. Now, maybe, maybe they oppose things they didn't oppose before because they're worried about incrementalism and the way that uh, liberals move forward on gun control laws. But that's just a political consideration, not a different philosophy or anything like that. Right. And I think that's important. You kind of go into it. I think you have an entire chapter on it in the 1930s and the gangsters and the automatic weapons. And I think it was a 1934 bill that restricted uh, automatic weapons and machine machine guns. And you talk about the history of how it really changed from uh, the, the technology that we had previously to this very fast. Pre- it was very striking to me to look at like Champlain, who I, I can't remember, was it five minutes? I don't even remember how long it was that he had before he could actually like do everything mechanically to reload and set it up for the next, uh, uh, you know, volley. And yet with the development in the thirties and the, the popularization of the automatic weapon in the minds of the public, it really made a striking parallel. Right. Well, you can think about it this way. During the Civil War, most so- infantry soldiers still carried uh, a gun, a muskets, basically, where you had, where they had to, you know, put a put a, a bullet, a bullet, a cartridge, or or a ball down the barrel of the gun and shoot maybe once or twice a minute if they were lucky. By World War One, so you're talking about what is that, fifty, sixty, probably sixty something years, you have a Maxim gun that can shoot six hundred rounds in one minute. 
and killed millions of people with it. Millions of people died because of that gun. Trench warfare was created because of that gun. So that's a very short time. That's one person's lifetime, you know. So wow. it's an amazing jump in technology. And that technology started during the Civil War where you had the Gatling gun, like a hand crank machine gun, which went to a Maxim gun, which was a uh, – sort of a recoil-powered automatic weapon to the Browning machine guns, which were gas-powered. And Browning, John Browning, the greatest gun engineer who ever lived, yes. uh, invented basically every gun we use today. I mean, obviously, there are improvements on, on what, but his basic foundational ideas are still used in, on, in an, on an array of guns, from shotguns to handguns to, you know. And he was rifles. Mormon, right? He was. He was Mormon. And it's worth mentioning, I think, that I have, a, you know, chapters on a bunch of gun makers, Sam Cole, Browning, Stoner. All of these people were self-taught, very American in the way they just tinkered with things, taught themselves, autodidacts who made these guns uh, and changed, you know, just you can hate guns or not. What they did just as on an intellectual level and a technical level is just an, an, are amazing feats. Like the Wright brothers with flight, right? Right, right. Right. I mean, John Browning, no one talks about him really, right? Because no one wants to celebrate a gun maker, but he invented the, the 1911 pistol, uh, and it was used by the U.S. Army from 1911, M1911, until 1986. So during the before World War One, ability of that. I mean, that right. is a long duration. Well, think about this. Uh, think about how a plane changed from 1911 to 1986. <laughs> but the 1911 gun was used from World War One until almost the end of the Cold War by the U.S. Marine, uh, by the U.S. Ar you know, armed forces, many of them. And uh, it was basically the same gun. That's how good it was. Uh, but can you imagine a Wright Brothers plane being involved, you know, in the, right. you know, in the first Gulf War or something? It would be absurd. And people still buy 1911s because they're such a good gun. Well, and the, um, it, it's kind of interesting to think, too, about the Garands and their popularity. A lot of people collect. I know people who collect the Garands. And that is uh, something that, I mean, there's a historical significance to it as well. But also just the, the, um, the technology of it and the appreciation for the manufacturing of it. Right. Well, I, I recently made a huge mistake because I did one of these, you know, clickbaity top five best guns in American history or something and right. I forgot to put the Garand on there. Oh, no. Yeah, because <laughs> I wanted to sort of spread it out to different kinds of guns. I made it, you know, right. we're different kind of inventors and uh, just a huge, you know, big blowback on that. And it was it, it was wrong of me because I think the Garand is just so important because it was so powerful and so much better than the infantry rifle of most other armies or all other armies in World War II. It had such a big impact on that war. And so many Americans who were in the armed forces learned how to use guns using that powerful gun uh, that it, it, it was such a difference maker. And the production of it was so amazing. He, Garand was a Canadian who later you know, became an American, but he had American citizenship, but he ran Springfield Armory. And he was just a, a very, just an incredible man and did a lot to help us win World War II. And you talked, I think, a little bit about Ruger, and people thought he was German because of right. the name, but he just kind of glommed onto that. Yeah, I mean, even the uh, insignia looks like this yeah. you know, German eagle. Um, <laughs> but no, he was American. He was from Brooklyn, I think, or Queens, somewhere uh, in New York. And uh, he he was amazing in that he was one of the first gun makers, and you see a lot of that now, sort of this uh, gun 
a lot of these gun companies have gone bankrupt and, and, and reemerged and gone bankrupt and reemerged. And there was a sort of a low point in American gun making. And he realized that there was this thirst, as you just mentioned, how people correct collect grands or things like that. But he realized that Americans had this nostalgia for the old times, and for the old guns. And he sort of grabbed onto that, built this huge company that out, outperformed all the old, you know, the legacy gun companies and uh, by building interesting guns, uh, one that looked like a Luger kind of gun, but it was a Japanese model and other. And he just, he realized that there was this thirst there. And then there was this sort of big upswing in gun ownership at the time, uh, having to do with sports and hunting, not just not self-defense as much. So he was, yeah, he was just a, he was more of a business genius, though he was a good engineer as well. So this might be like asking someone to pick which is their favorite child, but do you have a favorite gun? Um, I am a big fan. For me, it's almost, um, I'm not a, you know, I grew up in New York, grew up around guns. I do shoot them occasionally, but it's not like I'm a build, I build guns. So I'm like, I'm not that into them in, in, in the way, in that way, though, more and more I am. So, but I do just as a theoret in a theoretical way, love 1911 the most. I just think it's the most interesting gun, but I'm more of like a fan of gun inventors. So like, I think Sam Colt is one of the great American geniuses, um, just in so many ways. I wish I could just write a giant book about him. You should. Uh, maybe that should be your next project. I know. I don't know. I don't know if there's a thirst out there for it, but I, there should be. He's he, he's just amazing, and not just as a gun maker, but uh, as a businessman. He changed the way Americans do business in so many ways. Um, you know, just mythology, sort of creating this like um, uh, campus, like Google, let's say, uses, or you know, he was the first person to do that to use celebrity endorsements to to to, to cut do a 2.0 of his product, you know what I mean? And, and like all of that. So I don't know, that's just interesting. So, but I'm more of like an fan of the inventors. So I love Colt. I love Browning. Even I, I think Stoner is, is, is great, but there are so many others people don't know about John Hall and, um, and, and granted, I don't know if people know his history and, and others as well. So it's just an exciting, uh, those are exciting inventors. And what was the gentleman's name? Mylan, who was from Lancaster. Yeah, there were so many different spellings of it, but I think Mylan is uh, his. They still have uh, schools names named after him, and like his supposedly his workshop is off one of the. Ro- I have family in Lancaster, so I go up there and take a look. But as I note in the book, I'm somewhat skeptical that he's actually the inventor of it. Uh, there's no real hard proof of that. And it's do you more think like- they realized that he what he did, or do you think that there would be an outcry to start removing his name? <laughs> I think there would be an outcry. It's like if I if I live in a very liberal part of Maryland, if I had if they had the school here, like the John Browning Middle <laughs> School or something, or Sam Colt High School, um, that would be awesome. Go, it would be awesome, yeah. But I don't think that'll happen. maybe in Texas somewhere it'll happen. I'm not sure. Yeah. Well, uh, my final question for you. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, it, was there anything that surprised you in writing this book? Um. I think I was surprised at how this is going to sound self-serving, but I think I was surprised at how, uh, especially in the 19th century, how Americans romanticized and loved their guns. You know, it, it was more than I expected. They're just in literature, in the way uh, people spoke about it, it, it almost weirded me out a little sometimes reading about <laughs> the sort of way people spoke about their own guns. But then when you thought, think about it's it's almost it almost reminded me about how a lot of uh, maybe 
you know, older American men talk about their the old cars or something. Yes, you know? I was just thinking that too. Yeah. So they, th- that's how they spoke about it. But there's this added, and actually, I think the car thing also has a sort of ideological, very American, you know, kind of underpinning. But there's also on top of the technical stuff, loving your gun, making it better, that there is the ideology, you know, and the and and the, the Second Amendment and and it's a very American idea, a uniquely American idea that flows through all of this. So putting those two th- things together makes the whole gun culture incredibly unique. And if you don't understand that culture, I don't un- know that you can understand the dynamics of the modern debate because it's a continuum. And and the people who are into guns aren't just born crazy and want to shoot things up. There's maybe some do, but <laughs> there's a lot more uh, to it. And I think that's why you need to understand that culture, like with anything else. That's right. And that's why people like Piers Morgan will never understand that. I think of James Madison's quote about the brave and gallant citizens of America who had the ability to be armed. And so that is, you you have a beautiful discussion of this through the entire book, and I commend it to everyone to read. Is there a particular place they should go to? They, As I said, they can follow you on Twitter. Uh, You write at the Federalists. Is there any other place you would direct them to? No, those are the two places I write, and uh, they can um, they can buy the book at you know Amazon and the usual places, and they can follow me on Facebook as well if they want. But I'm not too active on there anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and they could leave a review of your book too. They should definitely leave a review. It's always helpful, and I mean that it's helpful to other people to know what it's about or if it's worth it for them to buy it. Well, th- David, thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. You're right in D.C. with Gail Trotter.